In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, in the gospel lesson for today, the Jews questioned John the Baptist and asked him who he is. And he told them that he isn't the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. However, they insisted that he answer them and give some sort of answer to what they asked. So John didn't say who he is, but rather he says what he has been sent to say, what he's been sent to do. And he says this, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here, John quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And so to understand who John is, we have to understand what Isaiah chapter 40 says. Okay, and this is how the text begins in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, comfort, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, the original Hebrew doesn't quite say that. Uh, It doesn't say speak tenderly. To Jerusalem, but rather it says, speak into the heart of Jerusalem. John has been sent by God to preach comfort into the hearts of sinners. This is the mark of his preaching, a preacher of consolation. And this isn't just a comfort in the body or comfort that you're financially secure or you have a good home or family or the government. That's not this sort of comfort. The comfort that he speaks into the heart is the consolation of the soul is the peace of sin forgiven. And that's how the text uh, goes. And this is what, how the next verses, uh, what the next verses say. It says, cry to her that her warfare is ended. Well, warfare with whom? With God. God and man are no longer enemies at war. And then it says that her, Jerusalem's iniquity, is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this and this alone is the only comfort to burdened and weary souls, souls that are anguish, uh, that are in anguish, souls that are weighed down by guilt, by sin and doubt. This was the purpose for which God sent John to preach, to preach this comfort of the forgiveness of sins into your soul, into the heart. Now, when you look at Isaiah chapter 40, the first eight verses are a sort of a conversation between God and John the Baptist. God says to John, he says, preach comfort. And then the text continues. And verse six says a voice, the, the voice of God says, cry. And John said, "Okay, well, what shall I cry? And here's what God tells John to say. He says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. So uh, if you're following uh, well what's going on here, God says, John, preach comfort. And then John says, okay, well, how do I do that? What do you want me to say? And then God says, tell them that they're like grass, like flowers of the field that are here today and they wither away and die tomorrow. And that's supposed to console you. <laughs> uh, what, is, what is the comfort of that? How does that help? <clears throat> now, I want to add something else here before uh, moving on. The English translation that we have, that we read from here, 
and, and in the English Standard Version we have says this, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. However, the literal translation of this does not say that our beauty is like the flower of the field. Rather, the Hebrew actually says that our faithfulness is like the flower of the field. Our faithfulness, not our loveliness or our beauty, our faithfulness is like the flower of the field. So we oftentimes hear Isaiah chapter 40 uh, during funerals, and we think, look, well, our bodies are delicate and mortal, and like the flowers, they fade and they die, but the Bible is going to be around forever, and that's what endures forever. And that's true, yes. But that's not what this text is talking about. That's not what Isaiah chapter 40 is really getting at. Yes, that's true. Uh, It's not talking about your bodies being delicate and fragile. He's not comparing your lifetime to a flower. Rather, he is comparing your heart, your soul, your faithfulness to a flower. I know we love flowers. Uh, We consider them beautiful. We hold them up. We decorate things with them. We give them to those we love. But as beautiful as flowers are, they don't last very long. They are feeble and they are weak and they are delicate and they can't endure much. In fact, uh, in in the men's Bible study this week, one member was telling me that some plants will die if you simply touch them with your hand. That's how uh, weak they are. Now, this is what God compares your faithfulness, the faithfulness of your heart to. Your faithfulness, your constancy, your dedication, and your devotion to God is not some sort of solid rock on which you can stand. Rather, it's like a flower which is here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, By the way, this is why churches throughout history have decorated the altars and the chancel area with real flowers and not artificial ones. Uh, It's not just to make the church look pretty, but it is a lesson and a reminder. The fact that these flowers had to be cared for and changed week after week was a constant reminder that we have weak hearts and that our faith wavers and that it is fragile, that our hearts are fragile. That, that's the teaching behind having the real flowers and watching them wither and die as the week goes on. Uh, and, and you sort of lose this teaching when you have artificial flowers. <clears throat> okay, nevertheless, uh, why am I saying this? Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying this because a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians will put an awful lot of emphasis on their own commitment and dedication of themselves to God. They will stake everything on their decision, on their dedication to God. They build the assurance of their salvation on their own devotion to God. In, in theology, we call this synergism, which means to work together in a sense. Or as most people know this, it's called decision theology. This is the teaching that your decision for Jesus and acceptance of him is the cause of your salvation. It is the idea that your faith actuates and initiates your redemption. 
So those who believe this, this false teaching, stake their eternal life on the fact that they at one moment in their life made a great and sincere and fervent decision to make Jesus their personal Lord and Savior. And they have certificates that show on what day they made their decision to follow God. And there are Christian songs for children that make this the emphasis of the Christian life. Songs that say, uh, that teach the kids to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. Uh, There's the Christian group on college campuses called the Campus Crusade for Christ that is built and founded on this very teaching. In the back of the Gideon Bibles, there's a page for you to fill out the date and the time in which you committed yourself to God. This was the emphasis in the Billy Graham's uh, preaching and the, uh, the crusades that ended in altar calls and the sinner's prayer. This bad theology was the motivation behind revival services uh, and tents and camp meetings and the mourner's bench and so on. The, the basis, the very, the very foundation, the uh, fundamental thought of contemporary worship comes from this idea of trying to create an environment that will move people to make a deep and sincere, profound decision for God. It's it, to create that entire environment, that entire ambiance that you would make that decision for God. It's all built on the idea that your firm and solid commitment and dedication to God is the basis of your forgiveness and salvation. Now, I point this all out because all too often you too will fall into the mindset of looking into your own heart and trying to console yourself by looking at your own faithfulness to God, as if that's some sort of comfort for you. Now, don't fool yourself. You know your own faithlessness. How many times have you made a resolution to do better, to keep the commandments, uh, to stop gossiping, to stop lusting, to stop committing adultery, to, to get your life in order once and for all? And shortly after you resolve that, uh, you fail. And how many times have you promised to God that you would not do these things and then fallen back into them worse than before? What is your faithfulness to God? You said you would fear and love and trust in him above all things. And yet when a virus and trouble and sickness comes around, you've panicked. Jesus says, be anxious about nothing. And yet when the government falls apart, you fret and you worry. You promise to trust in God, trust that he will take care of you in your body and your soul and give you your daily bread. And not one week of your life has gone by where you didn't worry, right? Not one moment has gone by where you're not anxious about something. How many times have you resolved to come to church and not skip a Sunday to do better, to read through the Bible? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read it from cover to cover uh, to take your kids to church. And then you've grown weary and discouraged and then you've fallen away for a time again and again and again. How many of these promises have you made? 
That is what your faithfulness or lack thereof looks like. You are tossed back and forth from making a promise to breaking that promise. The faithfulness of your heart to God is like a flower that dies very, very quickly. It springs up quickly and it dies quickly. Why? Why? Why would you want to build the assurance of your eternal life on that, on what you have decided? Why would you stake your eternity on yourself, on your commitment or your dedication or your good works or your momentary heartfelt desire to God? Why would you put your faith in your own faith or your own faithfulness to God? Listen to me well here. You are not dependable. I know. (laughs) Uh, And if you cannot depend upon yourself to keep temporal decisions you've made, temporal resolutions, how much less should you depend upon yourself for eternal ones? It's not just that you're an imperfect sinner. That's true. But this shows that you cannot even be trusted. You cannot trust in yourself. Your faithfulness is like a flower that fades. That is what Isaiah is saying. That's what John was sent to preach. All right. So God tells John to preach comfort into the hearts of sinners. And then he says, you are untrustworthy, undependable, and entirely unreliable. There, comfort. Right? Uh, Now, how in the world is that comforting? Well, the fact that John wants you to know that you cannot rely upon yourself and that God knows that you cannot rely upon yourself, God knows this, is a bit of a relief. And this means that you're not Jesus. You are not the Savior. You cannot save the world, let alone yourself. You cannot fix everything in your life or make it work. I know it's hard to hear, but it is true and it is good. Your faithfulness is not good enough. You cannot depend upon yourself. And that means that God isn't depending upon you either. This is only the beginning of the comfort because the full comfort follows in these next words. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand to eternity. The word of God stands when we have failed. And this isn't just some vague or nebulous sense that the word of God says. Uh, In John chapter 1, in the beginning, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this word of God is not simply a what, but a who. It is Christ the Lord. So where you and I have been feeble and been deceived, like reeds shaken in the wind... It is Christ the Lord whose sandals we are not even worthy to stoop down and untie, who has been steady and good. He gives you himself for you and to you to rescue you from every misfortune. He does not waver and his promises 
will not bend or break. Jesus isn't looking for you to live up to some sort of your part of the commitment or your part of the deal. He cannot depend upon you for this. Rather, you depend upon him. He is the Christ, not you. And this is a good thing because he takes away every single one of your sins, small and large and public and secret. And it's his word, not yours, that endures to eternity. Your faithfulness quickly fades and your devotion shakes and withers away. But the word of God is an anvil, a rock, a solid foundation that cannot be moved. The word of God has stood against criticisms and objections and philosophies for thousands of years and attacks, and yet it still stands true. The word of God has remained through persecution of fire and lions and wars and evil emperors and governments, and it hasn't budged an inch. If the word of God has stood through all of these things, then the promises of God's word will stand easy enough through your illness and through your depression and through your weakness and through your wicked leaders and politicians and through every single trouble and sorrow. His word will stand through your tragedy and your pain and it will stand and remain true even when you fall away, even when you are not true, even when you doubt and are faithless. His word will uphold you. And most especially, the ongoing repetitive consolation of the forgiveness of all of your sins This will endure. This is firm. And this was here long before you and I ever took our first breath. And it will still be here after we take our last. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not his word. So dear saints, on that final day when you see his glorious face, what won't matter is what you've done in this life or how many times you've failed miserably and sinned. The only thing that will matter on that day, in fact, the only thing that matters today uh, and, and every other day of your life is that the virgin's son went to the cross to redeem you, to shed his blood for you, to forgive you all of your failure and your faith, faithlessness and all of your sin and all of your guilt, to take that away by his faithfulness to God even while dying. What matters is that that he was faithful even unto death. And this is the preaching of this comfort into your heart that matters the most. The world and everything in it will pass away, but not this. This is something on which you can rely on, not your dedication to God, but God's dedication to you that he made to you in your baptism. When you were helpless and could not speak or do a thing for yourself, God did everything for you. And he said, don't rely upon your faithfulness to me, but upon my faithfulness to you. And those who do will not be put to shame. So when your last hour comes and you will then watch his word endure as death has to give way to him forever. So be at peace and have comfort because all of your sins are forgiven. Amen.
The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.